Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Hello and welcome to another episode of Tennis Channel Inside In on the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm your host, Mitch Michaels, as always, from the Santa Monica Studios. Happy to bring you some more tennis discussion from the experts in the game. We're going to be talking today to Paul Anacone, legendary coach of Pete Sampras and Roger Federer. He's been a guest on this show a few times. We break down the ATP Masters, his thoughts on Roger Federer's retirement ceremony at the Labor Cup, some discussion on the young players in the game making their move, how they're managing expectations, the WTA Finals, Rafael Nadal's first match loss in the Paris Masters, and much more with Paul Anacone. And then Chris Eubanks joins the show for the second time. He was in the studio calling matches, commentating for us, currently playing. We discussed his last six months since he was on this show, what it was like to win his first main draw match at a major at this year's U.S. Open, how he's steadily progressing, his thoughts on his friend Coco Goff and the rest of the WTA finals field, and much, much more. It's Paul Anacone and Chris Eubanks on Tennis Channel Inside In, and it starts right now. All right, now on Tennis Channel Inside In, we're joined by a regular on the TC Airwaves, a pro for a long time, a coach to the stars. It's Paul Anacone. Paul, thanks for taking time out of your busy schedule, calling all these great matches at the Paris Masters for joining the show. Thanks, man. Appreciate you having me. Always fun to uh, talk a little shop. Yeah, we're, we're talking shop today. And before we get into the current stuff, I have to ask you, in reacting to Roger Federer's retirement ceremony, the Labor Cup, just a fitting tribute to a legend. What was your perspective watching it? Somebody you got to know with, you know how important the game was and the camaraderie of being a pro tennis player, being on tour. What was your reaction to seeing the fantastic tribute that he got at the Labor Cup? You know, I think it's always hard to watch our legends retire and, and to go away. We want them to hang around a little bit longer, want them to play longer. And I think you know, it was a lot of deliberation that went into the decision for Roger. So it wasn't something that uh, he just woke up one morning and said, okay, I'm done. Um, I think that the body basically led him to this conclusion that he couldn't play the way he wanted to play it at the level he wanted to play at and maintain good health. So that being said, you know, to watch him on the court playing doubles with Rafa in the last match, I think was very fitting. You know, I know it meant a lot to him. Um, to be on the court with Rafa for the last time and for them to play doubles together meant a ton uh, mm-hmm. for, for him to be able to do it at an event that he um, is a co-creator of, I think means even more. And to see all the players that are there and the fans that really paid tribute and also said thanks, really, yeah. uh, it was emotional. I mean, it's emotional because you never really want to see these legends go away. But I, I think it's the right time. And it, all that really matters in my mind is as long as he thinks it's the right time, then uh, God bless and good luck with the next chapter. Yeah, it was just classy. And that's just fitting for him. It was just a very classy, perfect send off. Um, and, and we've talked about it a bunch, but I, I just think it was so cool and so special a moment and an opportunity for the young guys to see this, to see what he meant and just the respect he had for the game and saying goodbye the right way. I think there's a lot to be said about some of those American young guys, especially that got to witness 
his send-off. Yeah, Taylor said to me, he, was, uh, he didn't think he was going to be emotional, but he said he did get very emotional. Yeah. And I think that, you know, when you see something like that as a young player that you've looked, to, looked up to someone that's been so good for so long, I think in many ways it's a really nice reality check about yeah. just that everybody has a shelf life. Yeah. And that you better get out there and do the best you can for as long as you can because you just don't know when it's going to be over. So I, I think there was a lot of good messaging for some of the younger players. Um, and for the fans, I think they really enjoyed it too. He was a mainstay on the tour. It's it's weird when that initial stage is without him. Uh, we try to just move on as best we can. The Paris Masters where he was a mainstay as well. Start kind of gearing up towards the end of this fall tennis swing. The finals are coming up next gen uh, as well. In your perspective, Paul, playing but also coaching a lot of these players, did you find it? tougher challenging to get the players to kind of stay motivated to battle the fatigue of such a long season now into mid or early November yeah I mean it just really depends on the person you know most of the players I always felt if they scheduled themselves well they tend to know how to periodize their year so that they are ready for the biggest moments and and if you have a chance to play in the year-end championships, that's a really big moment. So for some of the younger players, I think it's more difficult to figure out exactly how much I should play mm -hmm. to play my best at the right time and how to train to do that so that mm -hmm. I play uh, my best at the right time in the biggest moments. Yeah. But I, I was very lucky because most of the players that um, I, I coached actually were, were really good about understanding, yeah. number one, and most importantly, what they wanted in terms of prioritizing their schedule and number two, how to do that. Mm -hmm. So I think it is a long year, and you have yeah. to figure out how to do that the best way. And I think that's what a lot of the young players um, are trying to do in their evolution as they figure out how to become veterans on tour. Yeah, you coached a lot of players. It should be noting that this wasn't the final stop. There was the ATP finals to keep going. And I agree with a lot of that sentiment about the young players, which is why it's so fascinating this week that some of the young players are the ones that are showing up with Holger Rune still in it, Alcaraz, of course, Musetti notched his first top five career whenever. So it's kind of refreshing because I don't think this normally happens where the young guys are kind of finding themselves later in the season. Yeah, no, look, it's been so dominant by the veterans in the last, you know, five to ten years. Novak, Rafa, Roger, Andy, you know, Stan Wawrinka, these guys that have dominated for a long time it's a rarity that you see what's happened this year. And you see someone like Felix Ojeda-Aliassime that's won three titles in mm -hmm. a row and continues to go. Uh, you see Holger Runa just starting to play some of his best tennis as well, and he's still alive. You know, Alcaraz mm -hmm. is still a little kid, and he's <laughs> number one in the world at yeah. 19 years of age. So there's a lot of great storylines. Yeah. And, and I think nostal you know, in terms of the nostalgia, it's always tough because yeah. we want our legends involved. But to me, it's also an exciting time um, to see the beginnings of some new chapters being written. Does this look like, from starting with Holger's perspective, that he's kind of here to stay? Because this has been quite the ascent, not just this week, but into the top 20 now, uh, is playing polished tennis. We heard about him as the world number one junior, but this is quickly looking like a pretty polished professional tennis player. Yeah, he is. Look, his game, I think his indoor game is better than his outdoor game. His yeah. outdoor game is pretty darn good. So, so. I think he's getting better very quickly. And then I think that we've seen what he can do um, on the indoor surfaces and how well and how cleanly he strikes the ball. Um, but, yeah, I, I do think there's no reason why he's not going to be a mainstay up or around near the top of the game. Ruff won a few feathers, but I don't think it's anything quite too egregious. But, you know, he's got some, some attitude out there, which I like. And I think he's becoming a factor to consider. 
And you mentioned Felix. I mean, he's on a hot streak as well, just looking at the numbers. That's 15 straight wins now, won a couple of tournaments. I find it so fascinating that within weeks, he's completely flipped the narrative that he can't perform in finals, to now he's just money. And somebody that I think, in another way, showing emotion has helped him. Like, he's kind of unleashing some of the the emotions on the court, and, and he is in a groove that he might not have hit at any point of his career so far. Yeah, I mean, let's think about it. It was just a very short time ago he was 0-8 in finals, and now he's 4-4 four for four in the last four tries. So, so look, when you're as good as he is, it's not a matter of if he's ever going to do it. It's just when. Mm-hmm. I mean, the 0-8 was a little bit of a stigma, a little hill he had to climb, yeah. and now he's over that hill. It doesn't mm-hmm. mean he's going to win every no. title, <laughs> but now he feels comfortable there, and he knows he can do it. So... To see him kind of put three weeks uh, in a row together, win two 250s of 500, now in the final eight at uh, at Paris, tells you something about this kid's level of play, number one. Number two tells you about his conditioning because mm-hmm. he's still healthy. There's no yeah. straps. There's nothing on his body, and he's played a ton of tennis. And it tells you about his ability to kind of maintain composure on the court. And I've always been a huge fan of his for all those reasons, and and he continues to shine, and I think we're just seeing the beginning. Do you think he's changed or improved anything from your vantage point, technically or tactically, to take this next step? I think so. Look, his forehand, he can miss at times in big moments. We see some miss hits and the ball fly, and we can see the second serve go astray. I think it's doing that much less now, and that comes with confidence and experience. He's done a lot of hard work. Uh, with Freddie Fontang as mm-hmm. coach, and, and Tony Nadal has been there periodically this year to help as well, which I think yeah. adds huge value So to get him more comfortable yeah. in big moments. So I think it's just an evolution, and it's hard to keep your kind of unemotional pragmatism right. about that evolution, but I think he's a young kid that's able to do that. You know, the hardest thing for a young player is to be able to see through the emotion of the moment and really truly evaluate what's going on and how to just do that in a way that is filled with fact and pragmatism and stuff that you can move forward with. And I think that's what Felix does really well. You said a few words there that are interesting. You know, the evolution and, and, and specifically improving the forehand that made me think of Francis Tiapo too, and what he's done and how he's not rested on a U.S. Open run. It wasn't too long ago when he made the Australian Open run, and he kind of, you know, plateaued there. It's the exact opposite now. He's playing consistent tennis into the quarterfinals. 35 match wins this year is a pretty healthy number for a player that still under 25 years old and finding his groove. Yeah, I mean, look, it's been fun to watch. Francis is one of the most electrifying players oh, yeah. out there. And, and I think what, you know, I really feel like one of the things that the young players have to learn uh, the good way, I mean, the hard way, <laughs> and sometimes with taking their lumps is that, Really, on the Pro Tour, you're, you're only as good as how you are in your average days because you, we started this conversation with the length of the year. You know, you're only going to play a handful of great matches all year. Yeah. You're going to play a handful of garbage matches and a handful of great matches. How good are you on your average day? Yeah. And I think these players that are of that ilk, of that generation, the Tiafos, the Fritzes, you know, Felix is even a little bit younger, but those guys, Tommy Paul, they're, they're starting to realize they can play average and win and live to play another day. When you're real young and you just start, if you play average, you either lose or you win and your confidence goes down. <laughs> yeah. So so how do you win playing average tennis and maintain confidence? Well, you do all the right work, you have the right people around you, and you realize that one average day doesn't mean a demise in your level. It just means one average day. 
people listening to this are going to be unlocking the secret of the big four, right? Because that's how a lot of their successes happen. As great as those players are and were, they weren't always at their apex for seven straight matches in a Grand Slam. No, we, we look <laughs> at the highlight reels, and they're off the charts because yeah. they are the most talented players with rackets in their hands. Otherwise, they wouldn't have won <laughs> yeah. all these titles. But I can tell you firsthand in conversations with Roger and my years with Pete Sampras and, and Tim Henman as well, who is a perennial top 10 and top five player, that you know th- they would play average matches and it wouldn't be a big deal. you know, And they would get through in three sets or and there was mm-hmm. no panic. It was just you know, this wasn't great today or that wasn't great today. What did you see? We would talk about it. And that didn't mean the next day they walked on the court, they felt like, "Uh uh-oh, there's a huge (laughs) problem Mm -hmm. because their confidence is so secure and their self-belief is so secure. And that's one of the hardest things for a young player to really get entrenched with, which is true confidence and security in their identity as a tennis player Mm -hmm. and also in in the confidence that they can play average and not have it uh, really fluctuate their self-belief. Right. It's, it's a very tough task. Uh, the last thing on the young players that I wanted to mention and a guy that's certainly up to that task so far, Carlos Alcaraz, number one in the world, you've coached several number one players in the world. There's the game, which we all know and love, but there's also the mindset you have to have and the tough mental task of being the top player. He's handling it well so far. What do you see with his makeup and that kind of propels him to have this kind of success? Yeah. You know, I think you have to figure out, you know, there's, couple things one you march your way to as good as you can be and two what do you do when you you're in that vicinity when you're in (laughs) within 10 percent of of kind of your maximum Mm -hmm. and and then you have to decide why you play why you playing and number two how do you sustain that and continue to drive yourself to get better and for Carlos he looks a lot uh, Carlitos looks a lot like Rafa it looks like he really embraces the challenge and loves the idea of trying to get better. Look, it's all new to him. He's 19 and next year expectations will change. He's lost a lot though, since he's become number one. And and I think that he understands he's going to lose and, mm-hmm. and he doesn't panic about it. It's not a big deal. So for me, a lot of that is about the people that are around him. Juan Carlos Ferrero has been number one in the world, understands the evolution of it. But for first and foremost, uh, Carlitos has to know who he is yeah. and why he's playing. And I think he knows exactly why he's playing because he loves it. He has a watch his face out there. He has a great time. Look at the biggest moments at the yeah. U.S. Open when he won. He was having a good time, mm-hmm. and, and so he loves the game and loves the challenge. And I think with his athletic skills and also the ability that he has to play so many different styles of tennis so well already. To me, that only is the best recipe for a, for a long-term success rate. His variety is something special, and there is just something pure, I guess I'd say, about loving to play the game and just being out there for the love of the game. And it sounds cliche, but unfortunately in sports, you don't always see that. No, look, and, and Mitch, you know it firsthand, too. I mean, that was one of the things I, I couldn't believe about Roger, even in his late 30s. He loved the game. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've never seen a guy at that stage in his career that was happier on a tennis court, practicing even. Right. You know, doing drills, doing the strength and conditioning stuff, laughing and enjoying what was going on out there. People think it's fun. Yeah, it's fun. But after year 18, when that's all you've known and you've done it for a long time, it can become arduous. And it's hard to keep that joy and that freshness in your mind. Federer did it. Novak has learned to do it the way that works with his personality, as has Rafa. Serena did it for many years. So you figure out how it's plugged into your identity as a person and a tennis player, and then you just ride that wave as long as you can. 
Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at newbalance.com. More with Paul Anacone here on Tennis Channel Inside In. Some pretty sage advice for young players and even veterans that are still trying to stay motivated. We saw Novak Djokovic take the court. Match is currently in progress as we record this, but it's been so good so far for him as he comes back to playing competitive tennis. He said he was working on other aspects of his game. I feel like the next iteration, whatever we see from Novak, it's going to evolve into something because that's what he's done. He's, he strikes me, Paul, and I'd love to hear your take on this, that as someone that changes up his approach to how he's going to play because he sees that that's what you have to do to stay at the top. I think the big thing about Novak is there aren't really any holes. You know, <laughs> I mean, when he was younger, his forehand was a little dodgy. The serve was a little dodgy. No more. I mean, mm-hmm. you look at the numbers, and he's as good as it gets in those components. Uh, his movement and his defensive skills have, have always been <laughs> off the charts. So... Now he, I, th- I think probably he's at the stage of his career where he, sure he enjoys playing, but he's also like, okay, what other areas can I add to get a little bit more successful? Mm-hmm. And the only thing I would say is that he's so offensive and he's so good at taking the ball early. Yeah. There's no reason why he can't finish at the net a little bit if he needs to. And he tends to not need to very frequently, but as he gets older, he may need to. And I think he's getting better and better up there as well. And as you know, he just dominates this event and indoor tennis. It fits him perfectly. I mean, he's good everywhere, but there is something about playing indoors and how these conditions just are tailor-made for what he does. Yeah, look, there's no elements. <laughs> the wind's not blowing the ball around. There's yeah. no sun in your eyes. And, and for great ball strikers that don't have to deal with anything at all, it can be a long day <laughs> when you're on the other side of the net. And that tends to be what happens when you're playing Novak. Well, one player that's not any longer in the term is Rafael Nadal. He lost his first match, uh, first match since the birth of his child, so congrats to him on that. Uh, Tommy Paul beat him, which, to give credit to the winner at first, Tommy Paul's having a career year as well. I know there's other Americans higher in the rankings than him right now, but him and Brad Stein doing some great work together. I've always marveled at his athleticism, but he's another guy playing some smarter tennis and really learning how to have a professional approach. Yeah, no, you, you hear me use the word of kind of tennis identity and, and tennis IQ, those kind of catchphrases, and there's no one better to have in your corner than Brad Stein if you're trying to figure that out. And and Tommy Paul has the raw materials as the athlete and, and tennis player to do all the right things. He just has to figure out how and when. And you mentioned it. This year it's really starting to come into fruition, and we saw it against Rafa yesterday. Lost the first set. Started mm-hmm. off good, mm-hmm. but then lost the first set. So you wonder, is Nadal, does he go away? Absolutely not. Played a better second set than Rafa. Uh, was dominant in the tiebreak and then ran away with it. He 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 is one of the few players um, that also I think can play in a lot of the different areas of the court very successfully. Tommy moves great, but he also volleys really well. And Brad Stein's kind of educating him to understand how to do that at the right times and how it works and fits into his game style. And uh, for Rafa, look, it's tough to play when you haven't played mm. a ton. It's tougher to play when you haven't played a ton and you love match reps like mm. Rafa does. And it's even tougher to play <laughs> when you add those things and you become a new father. Yeah. So he's got a lot on his plate. He's earned the right to do what he wants, when he wants. Um, he was a little choppy yesterday. He's never been 
the same Rafa indoors mm-hmm. as he is outdoors. So I think it was a tough day at the office for him. And um, look, he's had a spectacular year. He's won, he won two majors this year. So that's amazing. So he gets to do whatever he wants, <laughs> in my opinion. <laughs> he's definitely one of the most strong-willed athletes we've ever seen and just so focused, process-oriented. When you hear comments like he said that he's not focused on going to being number one anymore, that he's focused on being competitive, does that – I guess, change your perspective on how you look at Rafa, or is it understandable given totally. his age? Totally. I mean, I totally get it, and I remember yeah. living it with Sampras and with Federer. Mm-hmm. I remember after Pete had been year-end number one six years in a row, after that he didn't care so much about being mm-hmm. number one. He cared about making sure he played his best tennis at the right time of the year, which means he had to take breaks, which means he wasn't going to give himself a full schedule mm-hmm. to try to chase number one rankings. And it didn't yeah. matter to yeah. him anymore, ego-wise. And I remember the same conversations with Roger in that they've done that. And initially when I started with Roger, that was one of the key goals because he hadn't been number one, I believe, in three or four years. And he said you know, two, two of the main result goals mm-hmm. we wanted was – uh, another Wimbledon and another number one ranking. And and he got both of those. But then after that, I remember him feeling like, okay, I don't need that anymore. Yeah, yeah. Now how do I play longer in my career and how do I play better at the big moments? And so you play less. So when I hear Rafa saying that now, it's not a surprise at all. And it's the smartest recipe to figure out how he's going to give himself the best chance at the biggest tournaments. He's got a lot of miles, as we know. The injuries were serious, so as more as he can you know, preserve his body and keep himself available for the biggest tournaments, the better. So I totally understand it's, it's not going to diminish that fighting spirit whatsoever. Uh, last thing on the Paris Masters before we wrap this up. Uh, it was great to see the tribute of uh, Felix Ojealia seeing beat Jill Simone in his final match. Simone going on a little bit of a run, ending his career in Paris. But it's good to see the tribute to the players that might not be household names, but made a living, was a top 10 player, and uh, carried the flag for French tennis as well as anyone. Yeah, he did. And Gilles Simone had a long career, 37 years of age, and you mentioned the top 10 status and playing Davis Cup and just one of the stalwarts for the French team for many years. So to see them, uh, see a player like Gilles, you know, say goodbye right there indoors uh, in, in Paris-Bercy is, it's bittersweet, but it's nice to see him get the mm-hmm. recognition he deserved. And look, my opinion, you're top 10 in the world at some point in anything you do as a profession, yeah. you're pretty damn good. So <laughs> yeah. the guy had a great career, and uh, now it's time for a new chapter for him. Can't wait to see where that goes. Again, we commend Gil Simone for uh, his tennis career going out in style. And I should say as well, Paul, congrats on the work with Taylor Fritz this year. I know it didn't end well in Paris, but top 10 player, just narrowly missed out on the ATP Finals. So there's another goal ready for 2023. But the progression has been good, and it was hands down his best year, and the process uh, was working mightily for him. Yeah, look, he's, he had a terrific year. He didn't have a great uh, finish, so, you know, the last couple of weeks were kind of choppy and tough for him. A lot of pressure he put on himself of expectation and making the year-end finals, and, and that's a challenge. Mm-hmm. But all in all, I'm a big believer of the macro, not the micro. And, and, and when you look at what he was able to do this year and the way he did it, I mean, he was injured for a lot of the year. He had a foot injury literally from the – middle of April until basically the middle of October. And he was able to do it without the training that we wanted, without the training blocks that we wanted on court time that we needed. And kudos to Taylor for being able to fight things out the way he does, one of the toughest competitors out there. But to me, I look at the two key people around him and Michael Russell 
and then Wolfgang Oswald, his physio, those two guys are irreplaceable and also invaluable. Mm -hmm. I mean, they have more great advice and sage advice than than Taylor will ever realize probably, but they've done an amazing Mm -hmm. job to help navigate kind of the little minefields throughout this year. It's been fun to watch. I can't wait to see where it goes. There's obviously a lot more of untapped potential, but it's been phenomenal. Again, uh, congrats to working with him there. Uh, last thing, I guess, the WTA finals with how it's looking. I mean, Iga has been on a tear. If she wins this and dismantles the WTA even more, we'll have to put her career this season up with one of the all-time greats. On the flip side, there is an opportunity because if it's not Iga, it's going to be the biggest title any of these women have ever won. So I'm excited to see how it shakes out down in Texas. Yeah, look, it's been. I think it's been a challenging time for the WTA, right? They've had mm-hmm. to deal with so many things because – of what's happened in China. And, and they had a lot of uh, vested interest in their mm-hmm. events being there, in particular the year-end mm-hmm. championships. So to see it here in our country, in, in Texas, is a mm-hmm. great thing. Um, I think uh, all, all the women are happy to be there, happy that they have the year-end finals. But but you mentioned it. I mean, Iga Svantec <laughs> has been amazing this year. And, and she's one of the uh, toughest competitors I've seen. And I talk al- oftentimes about navigating new sets of expectations. Well, when she became number one, she's navigated those <laughs> sets of expectations pretty darn well. And also so exciting for me to see Jesse Pagula have a great year, go into the year end finals number three in the mm-hmm. world. Um, she's been amazing. And we've talked about Coco, it feels like for 20 years already, yet she's <laughs> not even 20 years old. No. And to see her there and playing such good tennis as well. I, I think the future is really bright for the women's tour. I think we're going to see a lot of different personalities we're going to see a lot of different winners, but I think uh, we have some great prospects that are going to be at the top of the game. It's a transition period, which is a little choppy, but we've got some great young players ready to carry the mantle. It's great. Uh, Paul Anacone, this has been fun. There is one other thing. Uh, this Saturday in Athens, Georgia, it's Tennessee versus Georgia, and the number one ranked volunteers. I don't know. I know you're not in orange today, but been a long time coming since your Vols have been back at the top of college football. I'll tell you what, it has been a long <laughs> drought, but uh, I was biting my nails during the Alabama game a few weeks ago, but to see them get a victory like that uh, against Alabama was a monumental thing. I think, you know, Georgia is an amazing team. It's going to be a great fight. Um, I'll be sitting there watching very quietly. Well, maybe yeah. not so quietly, but of, it's going to be a lot of fun. Of course, of all legacy in Paul Anacone. Thanks again for coming on Tennis Channel Insight, and always a blast. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to talk some tennis. I appreciate it, Mitch. You have a good one. Always a pleasure chatting with Paul Anacone, one of the premier voices in the game. Very knowledgeable. If you get a chance to study at the learning tree like I do, you should definitely take advantage of that. But thanks to Paul Anacone again for coming on the show. Now we talk to a current player, current player and current analyst, Chris Eubanks. He joined the show six months ago, and in that time, he's steadily improving his tennis, getting into some main draws, making some headway, qualified for the U.S. Open, and won a match, and then gave Yannick Sinner all he could handle in a couple tight sets. He recaps his wild summer, his breakthrough, his thoughts on broadcasting, kind of what his goals are, the state of the game, the state of the current women's game, and some funny moments as well with Chris Eubanks you're not going to want to miss. Here he is now on Tennis Channel Insider. All right, welcome everybody back to Tennis Channel Inside In. Now with us in the studio six months after his last appearance, 
you know, the training wheels are off, an official broadcaster now. It's Chris Eubanks. Uh, Chris, thanks for coming back to the show. A lot to catch up on. And uh, I've noticed you're still getting your athletic training, and there's a lot of sprinting from calling the last match to getting to the stage for TC Live. But thanks for coming back to the show. Absolutely. No problem at all. I've gotten a bit used to the sprinting. So uh, it's been fun, though. It's been fun. Six months ago, a lot's happened, you know, in your broadcast work, but also in your tennis career. And I want to kind of talk about that. You know, you're, you're very open with the grind and how you're traveling. You just got back from some tournaments in South Korea, playing some events there. How's the grind been these last six months? You've had some pretty good results in the summer, but how's the grind, the, the life of a tennis player, a traveling tennis nomad been? Oh, it has its ups and downs. It, you definitely, <laughs> there are moments in which you miss being able to be home and being able to schedule things with your friends. They reach out and say, hey, I'm having a birthday on this date. You got to go, hey, I don't even know where I'm going to be. I don't know <laughs> what country I'll be in, what times. I have no idea of anything. But you, you become more and more accustomed to it. Obviously, when you're playing well, it makes it a little bit easier. So I think that that's helped me throughout the summer. I've been playing some really good ball um, throughout a lot of the weeks this year, and I've been able to just kind of piece together some good weeks. Finally got my first Grand Slam win, which I think was the biggest, you know, battery in my back I could have had I remember walking off the court and just seeing some friends and saying wow I finally feel like a professional tennis player yeah. I know I've qualified in a few times I've won some rounds at tour events but so you get that grand slam win it just doesn't really mm -hmm. at least in my case I just didn't really feel like a professional tennis player and I can finally say I have one now I'm yeah. looking to try to get many more I'm looking to try to end my year on a high note with these next three yeah. tournaments coming up and I'm just excited it, it's definitely like I say has its ups and downs but as long as you're playing well, you can make it work. Do you feel like that path and that tennis life is kind of, you know, incremental progress? I don't want to belittle other sports, but, you know, there was so many baby steps along the way that led to that uh, that match. I go back to the uh, International Hall of Fame tournament on grass where you played a hell of a match against Bonzi. It was, you know, hot as, you know, what out there, and you're battling. And even though you lost that match, it did feel like you were getting closer. Did you feel like that when you were playing, that, okay, like it wasn't the result, but – this is a step in the right direction. A thousand percent, a thousand percent. But even being able to quali in and, and playing Dominic Cup for first round, mm. that was a tournament that, ironically enough, I actually kind of went to by myself. I kind of wanted to get even more out of my comfort mm -hmm. zone. Newport's a tournament I know really well. I know a lot of the staff that work and help to put on the tournament. So I didn't really feel that, that much alone, but I went by myself. I had a buddy of mine who was playing doubles and Evan King. I said, yeah. Evan, could you watch a couple of my matches just so I have someone there to look to and vent to and he agreed and being able to quali in win two rounds and having that whole experience winning my first round main draw and then my match against Bonzi I thought I played pretty well I mean I played a guy who's been playing extremely well this year as well and then I saw after he beat me how much he pushed John in the next round so again you see little things like that it gives you a little bit more of a, of a mm -hmm. like I say a battery in the back a little bit more of a yeah. charge to say you know what I'm on the right path I just need to keep going I need to keep doing continue to fight and then just allow the course to take take place. You know, make, breaking through at the U.S. Open, winning your first Grand Slam match, but also going through and qualifying had to spe be very special, too. Like, you earned it. It wasn't just given that extra opportunity. You had to battle best of five matches, a, an entirely different challenge. But that had to add that extra level of, you know, awesomeness to what you did. Most definitely. And the craziest part about <laughs> it is the week before, I actually had COVID. So mm. I was I was in a... Five-day quarantine, tested negative on day six, thankfully. Flew, was in the Chicago Challenger, originally supposed yeah. to go to Vancouver. Tested positive before Vancouver, so I remained in Chicago for, like I say, those five days. Flew home to Atlanta, I believe, 
Wednesday, and I believe I flew to New York on Friday. And mm. once I got to New York, I wanted to actually, I believe, no, I flew to flew home to Atlanta on Thursday, flew to New York on Saturday, and I tried to cram my practices in because yeah. simply because I was stuck in a hotel room for that amount of time, just self isolation and not knowing exactly where my body was going to be. I was mm-hmm. like, I need to try to you know jumpstart things. So Saturday, yeah. I have two practices back to back with. Brandon Holt and Jack Sock, and I'm an hour and a half <laughs> in, uh, actually halfway through my practice with Sock, and I start feeling cramps coming. I start mm-hmm. feeling the hammy start to go, and I'm saying, man, if I can't last an hour and a half, I don't know how I'm supposed to last just a two out of three set match, let yeah. alone a three out of five. I was just trying to get through match <laughs> yeah. by match. Luckily, continued to train on, I believe, uh, Sunday, got proper hydration in. Monday, I believe, was an off day, and we started playing on Tuesday. I requested for them to put me Wednesday, but due to scheduling conflicts, they weren't able to. So get out there on Tuesday and actually win my first round, four and four, kept things nice and quick, <laughs> wasn't out there for too yeah. long. And then, ironically enough, my second round qualities, I think, was the longest two out of three set match <laughs> I've ever played. I've never played a two out of three set match. Yeah. That was almost three hours. Never. Yeah. I usually keep it nice and quick. We got things to do. People people can't yeah. sit around and just watch serving and all that for, mm-hmm. for three hours. But <laughs> I had to fight against Gregor Barrera. I was able to win 7-6 in the third. Um, and just from that point on, I think it gave me the confidence to say, right. hey, my body's ready. Despite yeah. what had happened last week, my body's ready to go. I'm ready to go. Now we need one more round to get into the main draw. I was able to do that. And was overall very, very pleased with my entire U.S. Yeah. And I got a chance to play doubles with Ben Shelton, which That's, probably yeah. oh, may be the highlight of my entire U.S. Open, honestly. It's on the list. I had that on there. But we can talk. I mean, that's one thing I did want to mention, like, I talked to you last time and we'd known about Ben Shelton, but this was before the hype train kind of left the station, but you were buying early on what this kid was doing. You played doubles, you beat the Sitsipas brothers in the first round there. From your perspective, knowing him and also sharing the court with him, what is it about him that has got people so excited that could make him a very special tennis player for a long time? Well, I think that there's a lot of things. I think the charisma and the swagger that he has on the court is something that's incredibly special. He just looks as though he's having <laughs> such a good time. It, it, I can remember a couple of years ago when he started playing challenges in the summer. He was playing some challenger qualies, and he's in like first or second round qualies, and it's two one in a first set. He hits an ace, and he's giving it loud, come on, <laughs> and a nice fist bump, and yeah. and it's like okay, you know, the college guy, he's hype, but he did it the whole match, and I'm like, I spoke to him afterwards. I said, Ben, you know, man tire yourself out if you're like yeah. so you know riled up at every single point and we just kind of laughed it off whatever and then the next year when he's playing more main draw challengers I'm seeing a different maturity he's no longer super hyped up at the first hold of the match he's still positive don't get yeah. me wrong he's still showing the positive body language but he's way more controlled he's way more within himself and I think when you see his game, you see a very, very big game. You see a six foot four lefty who can move well, who can put serves in the one mid one thirties mm-hmm. consistently. Has a kick that jumps it's amazing higher than Isner, like <laughs> yeah, not higher than Isner, but it can get up, relatively speaking, just as high as some of the serves of, of much taller players. And it's it's just so impressive just to see the buzz around him. I remember in Atlanta this year. I practiced with him a lot, and especially before his match with John, trying to recreate a kick, good kick serve so he can prepare. But to see that stadium just completely, I don't want to say turn on John, because John is, we always joke around as players and call that tournament the John Isner Open. Yeah. But that stadium was a good 50-50, and that's not something we're used to seeing in yeah. the Atlanta Open. You're used to seeing Isner having so much fan support, the crowd completely gets behind him. 
But they saw something special in Ben. They saw the game that he brings. They saw the swagger that he has on the court. And just seeing how good he can be is so, so exciting. And I can't wait to follow it. Well, his dad's done a great job with him, getting him ready for this moment. It has to help to have that in, in your back pocket as well. But I'm with you. I mean, it's just such a you know breath of fresh air to see him coming into the sport. Uh, just kind of getting back to that U.S. Open run. I mean, you're, you're able to play qualifying and then win a best of five. As a tennis player, how do you switch up or adjust to the best of five format? Is that extra training? Is that more endurance stuff? Because it's now just in majors. How do you prepare your body for one of the hardest challenges in all of sports? You know, everybody's different. For me personally, ideally, if I don't have to quarantine the week before, <laughs> yeah. I'd like to have practices that began to extend a little bit longer, whether mm -hmm. that's starting my practices. Usually I'm practicing around two to two and a half hours, maybe mm -hmm. three hours, but also saying, hey, let's try to get a four-hour session in. Let's do drilling and then go straight into a couple sets. Then you can break it up a right. little bit. And just to train the body, but also train the mind to be able to focus for that long. Because three out of five just has so many ups and downs, so many ebbs and flows throughout mm -hmm. the course of the match. It's not as much of a sprint as a two out of three. So typically that's how I would like to do it going into this U.S. Open. It was more so because of, like I say, having COVID right before. I just had to kind of have the peace yeah. of mind and just trusting that, my hydration, yeah. my physical fitness that I had done beforehand was going to be enough. And I think mentally is probably the biggest yeah. hurdle because I've seen so many guys who have played marathon five-set matches at different points in their career play a best-of-three-set match in the summer and, you know, start to wilt physically. And mm. it, it would always confuse me. I go, I've watched this guy play for four and a half hours one time. Yeah. How was two and a half in Atlanta Heat really getting to them? But it's just a different level of stress just because of the mental fatigue of saying, this is the final set, this is where it ends. Mm -hmm. Best of five, it's like two sets to down, two sets to love down. I just need to get one. If I can get one, then I can get two. And it's just there are different mental exercises, I feel like, in a three out of five yeah. that don't really come into play in a two out of three. And the more you play them, the more you get used to them, and you can kind of go, go about it that way. You're exactly right. I mean, how many times do you see the greats, like the Djokovic's or the Nadal's, come back from two down, and we're watching it now saying if the person doesn't win in straight sets, it's probably not going to go their way. Exactly. they get one, they're coming back all the way. It was a heck of a heck of a tournament for you getting through qualifying, winning a match, then giving center. You know, those first two sets, that tie break, it was oh, exciting. Man, that tie I, mean, I still that second yeah. serve ace, I believe it's <laughs> six all in the I believe it was around six all. I remember we had chain sides. Yeah. But he came up with a second serve ace. I went back deep in the court to try to find a forehand on the second serve, and he went slice wide. That caught the outside edge of the line. That serve still haunts my dreams. <laughs> Well, Even now, yeah. but I just overall, the, the experience was a blast. Man. Yeah. Being able to play on Armstrong Stadium got pretty packed. It got pretty rowdy. We had some good points. <laughs> it was great ball striking yeah. for both of us. And again, I think for me, not having too, many, too much experience in the best of five, going down two sets to love, mm -hmm. that heel just looked so big. And mm -hmm. I just felt a little bit pressed. He also adjusted some things tactically, yeah. gave me a little bit of problems, but... It was fun. Definitely yeah. was a fun experience getting able to match up against a, a guy top 10 in the world. I got to play Rude earlier this year in Indian Wells. Yeah. I got to play center this year at Indian Wells. So it's been very good yeah. to be able to measure my game against some of the best players in the world. Yeah, as you're leveling up, you're playing some of the very best, even when they're on their way up. Francis in the City Open, yeah. uh, playing Tiafo there. Jack Draper before he kind of came up as well yeah, in a tight three-set match. I about that one, yeah. What's it, I mean, what's the difference, if you can say, from both, both a player and an, and an analyst someone that's sharing the court with these players 
what is it about that next tier that you're trying to get to and what they do to kind of put themselves in that top 20, top 10 range? Well, I think that they just have a remarkable level of consistency. And I think that in order to get inside the top 100, you have to have a certain level of consistency in which week in and week out, you just know your base level game is not going to lose to certain players yeah. or a, you hate to say it like that, but they just won't lose to certain players. You trust that on your worst day, what you bring to the court on your worst day is good enough mm. to get you a win against certain players. That means you can rattle off one, two, three, four, five, hopefully five wins in a mm -hmm. week. You just can take confidence in that, and I think that's what they do really well. Even when they're not playing well, yeah. they can just trust their, their strengths, and they just know that when push comes to shove, I'm the better player in this situation, and I'm going to find a way to get a yeah. win, and I think that's what they do really well, and that's what I have to get better at is the consistency. Mm. I, I feel confident that – my level on any day is good enough to really cause guys problems or maybe even beat some of the best players in the world, but I just don't have the consistency as of yet. I do think, honestly, doing some of the commentary, being able to watch a lot of matches beginning to end of some of the best play players in the world gives me a different perspective that hopefully I can take into my next few events. Well, it's been fun to watch, uh, again, like the City Open beating Bonzi and then Francis Tiafo match, which by the way, if there's one critique I have of Francis, the body language always looks like he's lumbering out there. It's hard <laughs> to get a read on if he's actually in pain or if that's just his natural posture, but no, it, it's been good to see. And, and I guess the, the last thing with this I wanted to ask you is we're seeing players manage their schedule. I know you're doing the TV work. You're, you're able to kind of take breaks, but then also hit it hard and work, you know, as hard as anyone. But we've seen players, Danielle Collins on the women's game, play less tournaments, Djokovic playing less, and they're still finding success. Do you think that kind of taking these breaks, recharging, maybe spending more time on the practice courts could be something that players do more often and actually yields better success? Well, I think uh, some of everybody's different. You have certain mm -hmm. players who need or want to play a lot of events and want mm -hmm. to play week in and week out. Dominic Team is a perfect mm -hmm. example. Even when he was sitting at top five in the world, I think he maybe probably played more tournaments than anyone else. He <laughs> yeah. just loves competing. He loves the – he looks at a lot, certain tournaments as training. He goes out there and he mm -hmm. wants to compete, and that's just what gets him into prime form. Certain players don't need as many tournaments. We've seen even players like Serena throughout the course of her career really yeah. manage her schedule carefully and not really trying to overexert herself. That's something that Federer did towards mm -hmm. the latter stages of his career. We've seen it. Novak and Rafa as well. I think everybody's different. I do think there's a time and place for it. Mm -hmm. of saying, hey, we're about to go on a three or four or five week trip. We're going to play consistently for those four or five weeks. And then we're going to take two or three weeks off. Who cares if other players are playing? Mm -hmm. This is what's best for us. And this is our game plan. I do think you have to manage that. But a lot of it depends on how you're playing at that moment. Yep. What time of year is it? How's the body feeling? So many other factors that go into account when, when looking at whether or not you should play more or play less events. But I think everybody's different. they got to find what works for them. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. More with Chris Eubanks here on Tennis Channel Inside In. And uh, as we mentioned, finding what works for them, the younger players are kind of making their move. Felix absolutely dismantles Alcaraz today. On a 12-match win streak, three finals in a row, he gets Holgerune. Both those guys won titles last week. You're starting to see real developments from both. I know Felix has been around longer and has been in the top 10. 
but this is the the generational shift that we've almost I don't want to say been waiting for, but it's been like when is it going to happen? Not just Alcaraz, now Felix, now Holger, Sinners in the mix. The the youth is coming. Like it's basically here by now. And uh, and for Felix's case, just his development on the serve and the forehand, as good as anyone right now in tennis. Absolutely, his serve and forehand over these past three weeks has been like you say, just as good as anyone we've ever seen, especially indoors. The mm. guy is just able to put his serve on a dime. But what you're also seeing is that he's producing a lot of first serves. He's having his first serve percentage is sitting in the mm-hmm. 65 70% range, which is so tough to deal with because he's putting them in great spots at a great yeah. speed. And it's not just a situation in which you can afford to just block the return back in the court because he's comfortable moving forward. His forehand is so lethal He's able to jump on any type of short ball. So you have to be a very, very good returner to cause some problems. And I think that's where guys are having the issue is just indoors. It's very tough to be able to make clean contact yeah. on that serve to make a good return to hopefully try to neutralize them. He's just being able to take offense from the first ball. And it's like, <laughs> well, what are you supposed to do? I'm never going to short Alcaraz and what he means to the game. But I will say he could improve his serve, and that matchup is tailor-made for feel Like, he hit a couple return winners, one on the break point today that was just remarkable. Backhand up the line was just absolutely just, beautiful. Yeah. Caught it exactly how he wanted to, and it was it's impressive, man. When he gets, when yeah. Felix gets going, and the way that he's been able to cut out a lot of the unforced mm-hmm. errors that he would previously have, having double-digit winners in the 20s and 30s yeah. and keeping his unforced error count in under 10 single digits is mind-boggling. It's, it's so impressive. Love that quote, too, where he's like, I just – Hey, grew up indoor, Montreal. I, mean, I can play indoor tennis. Exactly. And I'm not yes, an outdoor creature. He's, he's not bad at all indoors. So we got that final tomorrow. Uh, we also have Medvedev and Shapovalov, which is an interesting final, and I think one that features two players, Chris, that we kind of doubted there was dips in their game. You know, Shapovalov beats Nadal on clay in the lead-up to the French Open, then struggles a little bit. I feel like when his serve is on, when he's not volatile with it, he can be a top 10 player. His ball striking is as crisp as ever. And Daniil Medvedev's year, very up and down, wasn't allowed to play all the tournaments, had the injuries, lost to Kyrgios a couple times. But these are two players that were trending down. They've righted the ship. As you said, the timing of the end of the year just fits them perfect. And they're back playing their best tennis. Yeah, I think specifically in Shapo's case, it for me, I felt like his serve was always kind of there. He would have some issues with the toss in mm. the past, but the serve is never what really concerned me. It was more so... From the ground, when he would get into baseline exchanges, because he's such a talented shot maker and he can literally hit a winner from anywhere mm-hmm. on the court, it felt like in times that he would show you that he could hit a winner from anywhere on the court, which means yeah. he would go for certain shots that, would, you know, when he makes it, it goes, yeah. wow, that's amazing. But if he misses, there's not a lot of margin. A lot of people would say yeah. exactly, why would you go for uh-huh. that? Why would you go for that? He still, he hasn't completely relinquished that element of his game. Mm-hmm. He's still a shot maker, but. He's constructing these points so well, being able to go big to big targets and just mm-hmm. being patient. And to me, I feel like that's it's really, really fun to watch because yeah. I love watching Shapo's game. I love watching the athleticism he mm-hmm. brings to the court, the 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 limbs swinging and the <laughs> yeah. this the release on the backhand. Yeah. He releases his backhand probably more than half of the guys with one hand on yeah. tour. He just it almost looks like the arm is going out of his socket, but. He does such a great yeah. job, and it's such an aesthetically pleasing game. You just want to see more of it. You want to yeah. see more shots, whereas a lot of times it would feel like he would get a ball that maybe there's a 50-50 chance it could be a winner or a miss, and he would err on the side of aggression, which right. I'm a player who's very similar. I do the mm-hmm. exact same thing, so it's funny being able yeah. to watch it. So now maybe I go on court, and if I get put <laughs> in a position where yeah. oh, I feel like I can hit a winner here, maybe I just 
pull myself back a little bit and say, let's wait for the next one and wait for the next one. But no, I think that's been great. If boring tennis works, it's not that boring. It's winning not is that boring. boring. Winning never gets, <laughs> winning is never boring. He's found it. And I don't get into Medvedev. Like, I don't want to say he's lurking, but like, he hasn't really been talked about. I know Alcaraz gets number one. Nadal's still out there. Djokovic coming back. These young guys are coming up, but Daniil Medvedev won the U S open. It was number one and is still in the prime of his career. So going into next year, if he's healthy, He's somebody that, and again, it's why I love tennis so much is that it's all about adjusting to who's doing well. Yeah. You make those little adjustments. I think Medvedev is absolutely reminding everyone he's still a main factor. Yeah, but even on the in the hard court, the summer hard court swing for Medvedev, like you say, his two losses came against Nick Kyrgios. Nick yeah. Kyrgios will beat anybody in the world on any day. Yeah, he can he can actually <laughs> yeah. beat anybody in the world on any day. And Nick is such a smart player and tactically, mm. he he. I mean, he talked about it. He used the serve and volley to great. Great effect against Medvedev. Brought him wide. Knows Medvedev likes to stand deep. Used the serve and volley beautifully. But even from the ground, he's one of the few players who has the patience to hang with Medvedev from the ground, but also the firepower yeah. to be able to hurt him. Right. Medvedev wants to go backhand to backhand. Nick can sit there and go backhand to backhand <laughs> with anybody, yeah. and then you leave him a short one. He can be dangerous on the forehand. So me personally, although he lost to Nick twice, I didn't take too much from that and say, oh, Medvedev – you know, he's, he's, he's slipping a little bit because I know how dangerous Nick right. can be, and I know Nick can beat anybody on any day. It's just like, hey, that's a tough draw right there because if you've got anyone else throughout the draw, probably has a better chance. But um, I think Medvedev's in good form. I mean, I know he's had to take a little bit of time off after yeah. Astana with the injury and, and, and other things with the birth of his first child and everything. But like you say, he hasn't been talked about a lot, and I'm he's probably okay with that. He's probably mm -hmm. perfectly fine with it. He knows where his level is. Hasn't dropped serve all week. Yeah. In Vienna, so he's serving extremely well in indoor tennis. It's probably one of the biggest factors, and if he's able to continue to do that, he's a, definitely a threat to win the year in championships. Some good finals coming up, Paris as well, and then we got the ATP Tour finals. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Uh, Chris Eubanks on Tennis Channel Inside In. Before I let you go, I'm going to lighten it up a little bit, talk okay. a little bit about what's going to go on forward. Uh, and I did want to ask you, because we got these monitors here and I try to use them as best. There was some content that was produced this year uh, that featured a lot of tennis players. And I've interviewed her twice on this show, Blair Henley. I just want to know what your thoughts oh, was on Oh, what did Blair do? Oh, this one here. Yeah, I know what this is. Blair is so, oh, you're going to play this? Yeah, we're going. No, I don't want to. Hey, Coco, what's going on? Oh, hang on one second. Naomi. Oh, wait, Naomi. One one minute. Serena. <laughs> so, Blair's great, obviously. Oh, one of I the love best. Blair. I absolutely love And Blair. this was one of the best. For, I mean, unbiasedly. I mean, she played into just your yeah, most it popular well, man. player. When I saw it, she sent it to me originally. And so, when I saw it, I couldn't help but die laughing. Yeah. I couldn't help but die laughing. I said, Blair, you got it. <laughs> hey, you got it. Peek behind the curtain. She said that you were one of the players that reacted positively. If it wasn't <laughs> positive, we wouldn't have played it. But that's just, you know, and it was good. I mean, she does a great job with this. It does highlight the fact that you are good friends with three of the iconic tennis players on tour. And those relationships are great to see. I love the community side of tennis. And then, you know, Coco Golf coming up into the, into the tour finals where 
I know Iga's got this reign at the top, but outside of Iga and Jessica Pagula, Coco's been the most consistent player this season. Absolutely, 1,000% agree, and that's what I think could, you know, pose some, hopefully some problems for Iga, just because she's got, she has the, obviously the record and the, the slams this year, and she's been playing probably the best tennis of anyone, but there's just something about Coco in the U.S. when she's confident, when she's feeling good about her game, she is so, so dangerous. Mm-hmm. And it's just, obviously, the conventional pick would be to pick Sviontek, but it's just something. I don't know. I guess I've seen that girl so much up yeah. close and personal, and I know how competitive she is. I know how much she hates losing. And it's just, I just, at some point, the tie's got to turn. Yeah. And, you know, it'll be interesting to see the first few matches. Round-robin format, round too. Round-robin for format, exactly. So it'd be interesting to see the first couple matches. I would love to see. Ego's form and also Coco's form. How are the mm-hmm. indoor conditions down in Fort Worth going to affect? Are they quick courts, slow courts? Who knows? Yeah. I think there's, that's going to play a big part in it. But I'm excited to watch the WTA year in finals, man. It's going to be fun. So I got to see her play down in San Diego, and two things stood out to me. One was just the, the fight, the competitiveness you said, the match against Andrescu, first time ever playing. Yeah. Not easy she, to play her I for the she, first time. I think she fell on match point or something. <laughs> fell like on match and point. fell and still won the point. But yeah. that's one where you have to adjust. You can't, like, you're going to be playing her. She's going to be doing unconventional things. Your A game might not be there. She fought, got through it. The other thing that struck me, too, and you can speak to this, is very process-oriented. She knows that Rome wasn't built in a day. There's things you have to work on, or the athleticism is unmatched, what she can do on both sides. But really improving the forehand, the consistency there, and her serves, specifically the toss, I've noticed those incremental improvements that, quite frankly, you would expect from someone much older. She's already a seasoned vet at 18, and I know Iga deserves to be the best, but I would obviously be banking Coco to compete with anybody, Iga included. Yeah, but I also think one thing that doesn't get talked about enough with Coco, and it's not even anything personally, it's just been her situation. This was her first year being able to play a full WTA schedule because mm. of the age restrictions that were placed <laughs> on her. Yeah. So you go, all right, this girl is now al- allowed to play as many tournaments as she wants, and they will all count for her ranking, and there's there's nothing holding her back. Yeah. And she makes top five in the world. Uh-huh. The outlook is so bright. I feel like she, she has always, and her family and her coaches they've always had that kind of long-term approach because they've known when she burst on the scene at 15 they say just continue to build we're not really focusing on where your ranking is going to be it's never really been a point of emphasis for them but then you happen to look at the rankings and she's yeah. gotten better every single year and it's like well, she's being able to play more tournaments she's getting more experience she's playing better she's traveling to t- there's something to be said for being able to go to the same tournament multiple times now you feel more comfortable and you don't have to wonder where's the players lounge or Where's the locker? You, right. you're, oh, I've been here before. Yeah. I know what this is yeah. like. I can, you know, revert back to, you know, previous experiences in the same places. So all of that is just part of the process that they've done such a great job of just being able to surround her with people who think like them. Be very, very process-oriented, right. not concerned with, oh, you need to be this ranking. You should have won a slam by now. It's says no. Mm-hmm. We continue to put in the work. What's going to happen is going to happen on its own time. Only thing we can focus on is do the work. And she embraces that. And it's wild to me because I'm like, yo, you're 18 and you have the <laughs> mindset of someone who, like a retired player. This is something you would hear from yeah. players in the late, latter stages of their career. Oh, maybe I wish I was a bit more process-oriented. Maybe mm-hmm. I wish I could have done these things better. She's doing so many yeah. things so well right now. It's going to be scary very, very soon. To be top five in the world, it's what you said, consistency. It's not just one result. It's why what Alcaraz is doing on the men's side is so impressive because you can't rest on one big result. And she has been consistently 
going far into tournaments, and it's been a joy to watch. And I love the fact that it's her and her doubles partner, Jessica Pagula, playing both, committed to that. Two Americans making it down there. Uh, I'm just excited to see. So It was so funny to me. I think during the U.S. Open, she unfortunately lost early <laughs> yeah. in doubles, yeah. and she gave an interview after yeah. one of her singles matches in which they said, you know, what do you do on your day off? And she very honestly goes, well, usually I'm playing doubles, but since we <laughs> lost early, I really don't know what I'm going to do. Just the honesty of just yeah. saying, like, well, you know, this is going to be a bit new. I'm used to having to play doubles on my off day, but we lost, so – I got to try to figure out how we're going to practice or whatever. And it's just that honesty of just yeah. being like, wow, she's she's so mm-hmm. used to in her Grand Slam life yeah. doing so well in singles and doubles that on the rare occasion they lose early in doubles, she's like, huh, what am I going to do on my off day? I'm not <laughs> used to having an off day. It's pretty crazy. Yeah, it's just, just a joy to see. Uh, Chris Eubanks, you know, this has been a blast. Very last thing, I am a man of my word, so we got to just get to the bottom of this. Oh, man, you want to <laughs> know this story. <laughs> So this was back in 2019, I believe, off-season. We did down in Boca Raton. Yeah. Patrick Muradoglu at the time organized an off-season training camp that consisted of myself, Holger Rune, Coco Golf, mm. Serena Williams, I believe. There were a couple other players in the South Florida area who came by. Marius Copil was one of them. Had another young Romanian tennis player, uh, David. He came, and I'm trying to think. I think that yeah. that was pretty much it. Uh, Sean T yep. from Insanity uh, Workouts. He put together a nice little uh, dance routine for us. Um, but long story short, there was one night that was a big karaoke night. And Serena loves karaoke. That's one of her favorite things. Yeah. So we put together a nice little karaoke thing. And I'm pretty sure we were singing Destiny's Child. Yeah, uh, this I photo right, right here. I think that's Oh, right. you got the video. Oh, yeah. <laughs> this is okay. Yeah, we can turn this one off. That's a bit rough. Uh, I can't listen to this. It was, it, so it was myself, Serena, and her hitting, par- uh, her hitting partner, Jameer, his then fiance, now wife, Jordan. Oh, man. Why is that video still somewhere? It's somewhere. You know, our tennis team does a great job. Jeez. But. Yeah, the, the yeah, 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 yeah. were my favorite part. Uh, yeah, well, we all knew, you know, we knew it. If we were Destiny's say, Child. You did very well in this. You were really carrying the group. <laughs> no, listen, if we're Destiny's Child, we all know who Serena yeah, is. Yeah, and and that course. is, she is front and center. We're just back there. This for is just like, I mean, this is great to see Coco and Serena on stage singing karaoke but and you being in there as well. <laughs> Obviously, no offense, but it's great. And Serena's in the center and a lot of good dancing from her. I think she really brought the energy there. Yeah, but, she did for sure. But this is, I mean, sure. look, you know what I'm getting at? Like, this was just a fun opportunity for a lot of the players to kind of get to know each other and yeah, you guys being great friends and, and singing destiny's child. And you know, there was a, there's a, you know, you were pretty, pretty excited. The tweet was, yeah, I think like, yeah, it was super fun nine. in the moment. It's yeah. just in the moment when you do something like that, yeah. you don't think of how the video is going to look later down the line. You're so yeah. focused on the moment of having a good time. And that's exactly what we did. We had a great time and now it makes for a great cringe worthy video. <laughs> she said she loves karaoke after that U S open match. That's what she's going to do. Uh, yeah. and, and what do you think about her going forward? Are we going to see her on the court? 2023 knows man i shot my shot at her to see if she wanted to play some mixed doubles i'm sure she could sneak us into some tournaments but uh you know she she made it pretty clear that she doesn't want to use the term retirement she Mm -hmm. she considers it an evolution she wants to continue to evolve and that's that was very very apparent in the article when she was when it was announced 
And even to this day, she still doesn't like to use the word retirement. I think some people are trying to get her to force use the words, are you retired, are you not? So she could be playing it up a little bit. I don't really know. Mm -hmm. I don't know what her plans are going to be. I would love to see her remain in some way, shape, or form around the game just because, you know, she's meant so much to the game and meant so much to so many people. But you can understand it. You know, she's invested over half of her life playing tennis, majority of her life playing tennis and playing professional tennis for over half of it. And can kind of understand as to why, you know, there's time, there's a time and place for everything. Maybe she wants to channel her energies elsewhere. Who knows? I don't know. But uh, we'll just – we're all kind of in the same yeah, situation. Yeah. We're waiting to see, and then whenever some news comes out, we'll be first to talk about it. Well, if that was the last we ever see of her, it was a perfect send off. What the U.S. Open crowd, you know, meant to that, her. That U.S. Open, I think, that U.S. Open, I think, was the wildest and most exciting <laughs> U.S. Open I've ever one been a part of yeah. and experienced as well. Just to be able to see. Unfortunately, we played on opposite days. Mm. Whereas if Serena and I had played on the same day, yeah. I could have stayed in the morning because obviously she's playing at night. But I could have played <laughs> yeah. my match in the morning and just stuck around the site all day to watch one of her matches because I know I would have had the next day off. It didn't really work out that way. We yeah. played on opposite days, so I couldn't really afford to be up in Arthur Ashe Stadium, <laughs> juiced up and cheering Serena on <laughs> yeah. at 9 yeah. o'clock at night to have to play first up at 11 the next day. It really just didn't work out. So I spoke to Coco while she was in the stadium. I texted her. Mm-hmm. Because she stuck around and watched one of her matches, and I said, what's it like? She goes, this is the most electric thing I've ever seen in my life. And I was like, I've been in Louis Armstrong when that entire stadium chanted your name. I was like, are you sure? She goes, no, this one's just different. Yeah. She's like, this one's just different. Like, like, people are not quiet. There's constant noise. <laughs> people are constantly yeah. just yelling. She goes, it was wild. And I, I got to watch it on TV. I didn't really get to experience it in person, but it still was a fun Fun thing I'll be able to tell people that I was a part of Serena Williams' last U.S. Open. It was an amazing run. Uh, props to the greatest of all time, Serena Williams. Uh, Chris Eubanks, this was a blast. Thanks again for coming on our, uh, our biannual uh, podcast interview. <laughs> uh, and just, like us going forward, still is committed, right, to the game, still still developing, trying to hit your peak later like a lot of these players are bursting through now. But good to see you on TV as well. But I know the commitment's there. You talk about training the second TV ends, and yeah. you're still as committed as ever. Yeah, I've had some some long training days this week. Tried to uh, tried to on the first day get some on court stuff done. Afterwards, I realized that was going to be really really tough, just because it's so tough to predict what time matches are going to end. So I went with the safest bet throughout this entire week and just started going six a.m. before coming into studio and making sure I'm getting my work in. That's one thing I didn't want to have happen this week was kind of you know not training and not preparing for what I have coming up for these next three weeks. So I feel like I've done a pretty good job getting in the gym. After studio work and getting on court before, kind of sandwiched that in, and it's been good, and I'm looking forward to next week. All right, thanks for coming on Tennis Channel Inside and Chris Eubanks. Best of luck with TV work, but also your return to the court. Appreciate you coming on the show. Appreciate it. Thank you again to Paul Anacone and Chris Eubanks for appearing as guests on this week's show. And a reminder that Tennis Channel Inside In can be found on the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. Go to tennis.com slash podcast to find Inside In and the entire other network of shows. We're on all your podcast platforms as well. So it's not hard to find us and we will continue to bring tennis. Next week, we'll recap the Paris Masters, talk a little next-gen finals, and get ready for the ATP finals in Turin. A lot of guests coming up. You're not going to want to miss the fall, the winter. We have all your tennis needs ready and roaring to go. For Paul Anacone and Chris Eubanks, my name is Mitch Michaels. Thank you for listening to Tennis Channel Inside In, and we'll see you next week.